0: Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button and I've got a great show for everybody today. We're going to be talking about a handful of smaller stories that came out with some biotech companies and then I have a short idea for everybody but it's a measured short. We're going to be talking about a company called Vaccinity that is trying to use their vaccine platform to treat different neurologic conditions. So That'll be our main story today, but we will start out by talking about Biogen, Achieve Life Sciences, as well as Sio Gene Therapies. But before we get into all of that, I hope everybody's doing well. I know the XBI has been in a very rough spot. I think on Fridays we saw uh, new fifty-two week intraday lows, which has been tough for everybody, including my portfolio. So, no joke, it is definitely tough out there. But I'm still hanging in there with a handful of positions, most of them down, of course, but it, uh, it is what it is. And before we get into our main story, I do want to make a little announcement. I'm going to be doing fewer Breaking Biotech episodes, so for that reason, I'm going to be stopping all Patreon donations moving forward. I want to thank everybody for their support. It really does mean a lot, and it's been able to help me quite a bit to produce these episodes and keep them going at a regular pace. But Priorities have changed in my life and for that reason Breaking Biotech is going to have to take a back seat. I'm still going to do the show and have on guests once in a while but it's going to be less regular than it has been before. So with that let's get to our main story today which is a company called SIO Gene Therapies. This company if anybody's been following it for the last couple years has been a total disaster. The recent announcement that we heard is that they announced termination of licensing agreements for GM1 and GM2 gene therapies with the University of Massachusetts. And this comes on the heels of them recently terminating their Parkinson's disease program, which was the original reason why I took a position in the company. When they announced the PD program termination, the CEO also resigned. So just one domino after another continues to fall here. And it looks like management doesn't see any potential for them to move forward in any of these programs and the Parkinson's disease it did seem like a long shot for them to be able to develop it completely but the GM1 and GM2 it seems like they had some early data that was encouraging so I am surprised that they decided to just discontinue and terminate the license so where they are now is that the company is engaged with SVP securities to advise it on a range of strategic alternatives to maximize shareholder value And at this point, they're really looking at reverse merger opportunities, is my assumption. And what this is, is basically SIO gene therapies would act as a shell company to allow a private corporation to become public without having to go through all the normal hurdles that an IPO takes, which are quite significant. So since SIOX is a publicly listed company, they do have a pretty substantial cash balance right now in terms of what a shell company would would need. So some private company could see this as an opportunity to proceed with a reverse merger and then be listed on a publicly traded exchange. So there's potential there for stockholder value to be maximized from where it is right now. But this has largely been a total write off for me. I think my uh, average is around $4 per share with 250 shares. So part of me wants to go Hail Mary mode and just buy like 1500 shares or so at this price and see what happens with this reverse merger. And maybe I'll be able to come out even. It would be a long shot, but at this point, the company just is absolutely incapable of developing anything clinically. And so they're looking at some kind of reverse merger. So that's where we are right now. The company does have around $64 million of cash as of March of 2022, and they're reducing headcount and terminating licenses. So the burn rate will be reduced substantially but they're trading now at $21 million market cap. So around a third of their cash position. And the reason for that is investors don't really see a lot of hope right now in them being able to use this cash in a productive way in even some kind of reverse merger. So there is some potential upside here, but it is a long shot as it is. And like I said, I consider this a total write-off for my portfolio, but that's, that's where we are. So that's SIO Gene Therapies not a lot of good news. This episode might not be the most positive because obviously most of our stocks are down quite a bit, but we'll get through it. The second company I want to talk about is Biogen, and they have also had a slew of bad news come out. I think really since FDA approval of Aduhelm, when I took my position, it's been negative news after negative news, and this update is going to share nothing different. The final NCD decision came out where Aduhelm coverage will only be restricted to clinical trials. So basically it's dead. Um, People aren't going to be able to afford the price tag of Aduhelm. And I wonder if Biogen had priced it more reasonably given that the magnitude of effect probably isn't really there. That maybe it would have been worth it for them to continue to sell it. But... Really, the infrastructure that's needed to maintain Aduhelm because they need infusion sites and all these other things involved to keep the operation going, it's not going to be worth it for them. And so they're winding back all of this operationalization that they've been focusing on for the last year in hopes of being able to deliver this and get, if they had received some kind of positive NCD determination. But that is not the case. So no Aduhelm coverage outside of clinical trials. More bad news though they withdrew their MAA for Aduhelm after learning about a negative opinion from the EMA's CHMP. So this would have been approval for Europe for Aduhelm in patients that have Alzheimer's disease, but that didn't work out for them either. They did however, initiate a rolling submission of the NDA for Sage's Zuranolone in the treatment of major depressive disorder. Now, The data here is kind of mixed if you look back it seems like the placebo had a pretty large effect too and then after that they were pretty stable so it's unclear exactly whether or not they're going to be able to get approval here but there's some hope obviously the company decided to go with a rolling nda submission here so they've initiated the first part of it and then they're going to continue to file the remaining components in the second half of this year so We'll have to see i think this is very much a 50 50 on whether or not it's going to be approved who knows how the fda is going to interpret some of the data that they submit and then they might have to just resubmit after then so very much unknown with xeranolone but it is a potential revenue generator for biogen if it's approved so after all of this has come out the company announced that the ceo Michelle Vunatsos. Is Going to be departing the company. So it seems like the board of directors has had enough with Michelle and the whole Aduhelm saga has not delivered for shareholders at all So they're going to look for a new CEO, which I thought would have bumped the stock more to be honest with you Given that the Aduhelm fiasco turned into such a disaster But that's not been the case. The company has fallen to new 52 week lows at 193 per share giving them a market cap of $28 billion. So still seeing new lows in line with a lot of other companies that are in the space right now. So we'll see who they find for a new CEO. Uh, Michelle's going to continue to serve during the transition, but you know what's he really going to accomplish here? Probably not much. And it'll just be a waiting game to see who they get for the job. The company reiterated guidance, though, in their Q1 earnings report, looking at nine point seven to $10 billion, which is very disappointing compared to what they were doing a couple years ago, but that is largely due to the decreases in their MS franchise revenue. We do have a couple of R&D catalysts that are coming up, which I'm hopeful for, and why I'm thinking about potentially adding a little bit, given that all of this negative news has come down. I mean, the total downside for Aduhelm, I think, is now priced in, but it's tough to know whether or not we're going to get good data here. So Lacanamab, which was Two Four Zero One. banned 2401, is going to have a phase three data readout in the fall of 2022. And I did a video on band two, four, zero one or lacamab like two years ago, talking about why I didn't think it was going to be a good molecule and that they didn't really have positive data in, I think it was a phase two trial. So I don't know whether or not I want to risk my existing position and wait for this data or just try to get out at the run up. Now, Another readout that's coming out is BIIB104, which is a phase two in cognitive impairment or schizophrenia in mid-2022. It's a smaller readout, of course, but if it does show some positivity, it would be like the first piece of good news that Biogen has seen in about over a year. So that could be very interesting, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet. So I'm down substantially on my Biogen position, but it's uh, it's unclear right now whether or not I want to cut and run or try and risk it for lacanumab and the company is interested in lacanumab if the data is good here you know it's got a different name than aducanumab it targets kind of different parts of a beta so potentially it could shift the focus from how negative aduhelm was into you know how much better this newer version lacanumab could be so we'll see how it goes right now i'm just going to hold and wait and see the next story I want to talk about is Achieve Life Sciences. And this was actually a really positive readout that we saw. I interviewed the CEO of the company uh, two episodes ago, and I thought it was a very compelling story. The company trying to develop cytosinicline for the treatment of smoking cessation. And there's tons of data for this drug. It's been approved in Eastern Europe for years, and they are trying to develop the drug in the U.S. market for quitting smoking which is a real interest of the FDA. We've seen tons of news articles come out from them or press releases about how the FDA is banning menthol and e-cigarettes and all sorts of stuff. So you would think that they'd be very interested in a molecule that can help smokers quit. But when Achieve Life Sciences came to them with all the existing data, they wanted two large-scale phase three trials in order to get enough safety data for them to warrant marketing authorization. That's what... FDA told Achieve Life Sciences. So Achieve went ahead and did that. They started two phase three trials. They wanted to break it up in this way so that they could get, you know, one complete set of data and then potentially proceed to talk to the FDA and see whether or not that's enough for them to get maybe the beginnings of a discussion on approval. And then in the meantime, they could continue the second phase three and continue to collect all that safety data, which is something that they're very interested in. So The results that we saw here are from the first of the two phase threes, the first one being called ORCA2, and the data couldn't have been better, frankly. The safety looked good, and here the efficacy is pretty impressive, and I'll read the press release. The primary endpoints for ORCA2 were biochemically verified continuous abstinence measured during the last four weeks of treatment. Both the six and 12 weeks cytosinoclean treatments demonstrated significantly better quit rates than placebo, with odds ratios of eight and 6.3 respectively. Subjects who received 12 weeks of cytosinicline treatment had 6.3 times higher odds or likelihood to have quit smoking during the last four weeks of treatment compared to those who received placebo. The p-value is below 0.0001. The abstinence rate during the weeks 9 through 12 was 32.6% for cytosinicline compared to 7% for placebo. Subjects who received only six weeks of cytosinicline treatment had eight times higher odds or likelihood to have quit smoking during the last four weeks of treatment compared to placebo, the abstinence rate here being 25.3% for cytosinicline compared to 4.4% for placebo. So pretty big magnitude of effect here. I think the company is very excited about this data set, including the safety that came along with it. And what did the stock do? It popped a little bit and then dropped like 10%. But really i thought that that drop was insignificant and i decided to continue to hold my position because they really do have some value here that i think a larger pharma will see some interest and i think the fda is going to look quite positively on the company also received approval from silicon valley bank to access the remaining capital available under its 25 million dollar debt facility put in place in december of 2021. I think this is interesting too because they're trying to tap into debt financing rather than equity financing. So we're not seeing any dilution of the stock here, which I really appreciate. So I listened to the call after the release of the press release here, and there was some interesting nuggets that I thought I'd share with everybody. So the first thing, and I alluded to this when I first started talking about the story, the FDA wanted enough patients for safety and their bar was like, 1500 or so i think whatever it was it's the sum of the two sets of clinical trials here so the company is going to continue to proceed with orca 3 because the fda guided to them that they want to see all of these patients in order to uh, decide whether or not it's safe for marketing authorization but what the company is going to do is they're going to see if a rolling nda submission is possible they're going to take the data they have here safety data bring it to the fda and see what they say and I think there's a chance that they could allow some kind of rolling NDA. It is a bit of a long shot, but I think it's possible and that the upside potential is worth it to continue holding a position. So that's part of the reason why I'm still holding. The other thing is that the CEO mentioned that the Orca 2 results will help with partnership discussions. So given that the data here I think is overwhelmingly positive, they're now going to have this in hand to be able to go shopping for partners outside of the america's where i don't think they want to deal with commercialization but also i think a company like pfizer is going to look at this and start to potentially have discussions with achieve life sciences so i think all of that is on the table now that they have this de-risked asset and for that reason i also want to continue holding my position so i don't want to sell in case there's a potential buyout on the table which given what they're trading at right now i think is uh, quite a possibility We also heard that their vaping trial is potentially going to start in Q2, but they're still in discussions with NIH for funding. They got a grant from the NIH, and I think that they had to continue some discussion based on data that they collected so far to then allow them to collect more funding to then proceed with the clinical trial for vaping. But I think that's also very interesting and that the FDA is going to look very positively on that if the data comes out good. So I like it for that. And then in terms of the timeline moving forward they're expecting full enrollment of orca 3 later this year with a mid 2023 readout followed by the nda submission assuming that the fda doesn't grant them some rolling nda submission start that could happen this year so that's achieve life sciences it's a tough biotech market right now there's no question but i think here i did make the right call because the downside was relatively limited and the upside potential is quite high. So I'm going to continue holding here and see what the rest of this year has to offer. Before we get into our feature story today, I want to thank our sponsor, and this is a new sponsor for the show. They're called Work in Biotech. So for any of you out there who want to take advantage of the labor market, which is crazy right now if you're looking for a job, every company is hiring right now. And given that interest rates are starting to increase, I think cheap money is going to become less available. So I would recommend trying to lock in that new job now before companies start to feel the pinch of funding crunches and they're no longer going to have that headcount available. So if you're looking to hire or you're looking to get a job, check out workinbiotech.com. They have a really cool website where they outline all the different jobs that are available in the biotech sector. So check them out, workinbiotech.com, and click the link in the description below or in the pinned comment for more information. And with that, let's get to the feature story today, which is a company called Vaccinity. They're trading at $5.51 per share, giving them a market cap of around $700 million. Their Q1 net loss is $50 million, which is quite high for a small biotech. And their Q1 net assets are only $130 million. So they really don't have a ton of runway here before they're going to have to dilute the stock and raise more money. Now what the company's doing is developing their Proprietary synthetic peptide vaccine platform for a number of different indications. We can see here that two of them, Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's, are in the neurodegeneration space, which is a very hot space but been met with some upsets in the last year or so. They're also looking at hypercholesterolemia and migraine, even though those are very preclinical. And then, of course, they have a COVID vaccine that they're trying to develop. And the idea behind their platform i'm going to try to explain it they're linking the peptide to some other molecule that's supposed to stimulate t cells so the peptide is supposed to stimulate the humoral response or a b cell response and then another molecule that they're going to tether to that is supposed to induce a kind of t cell response that would allow for longevity in the antibody titers that you see with this vaccine There's some evidence to suggest that it's better, but I'm going to go through some slides here that show why. I don't know if it's really the case. So the nearest term readouts for this company, one is in a phase one part B data readout for Parkinson's disease, and this is supposed to be happening in the second half of 2022. And then they have a phase three top line result coming in the second half of 2022 as well. The other programs, they're interesting, but they're not the focus here because I think the value right now in this company is being priced into these two programs. So I want to start talking about COVID. I'm not going to go into it at all, but I think the COVID story has largely deflated. We've seen Moderna and Pfizer's dominance in the vaccine market lead to recent lows in their stock price. So I think another COVID vaccine coming on the market is not necessarily going to lead to substantial revenues for a company it is a phase three though and if the data is overwhelmingly positive then potentially we could see a bump but i don't see this as largely a big mover for the stock given that pfizer is a clear dominant player in the market right now as it is and we're starting to see dwindling vaccination rates across the world for that reason i think proceeding with COVID at all is kind of a lost cause here So for those reasons, I don't think the COVID readout is going to be very impactful. Parkinson's disease, though, I think is interesting. It's a pretty big market, and it's a space in which there's a number of other companies trying to develop either vaccines or antibody treatments to try and reduce the amount of alpha-synuclein in the brain. So I'm going to talk in more detail about this program, which I think doesn't hold a lot of promise. And for this reason, I'm looking for Vaccinity as kind of a short position, but I'm gonna talk at the end why you have to be very careful with this, especially with the borrow rates that Vaccinity currently has if you were to short their stock. So with that, let's get into it. And if we're gonna talk about targeting alpha-synuclein, the protein itself has a role in synaptic trafficking of neurotransmitters. So if you remember the cartoons from high school on what a neuron looks like, there's a number of different proteins that are involved in shuttling neurotransmitters out of the neuron into the presynaptic area, I think they call it, and alpha-synuclein happens to be one of those. Now, what has been determined is that when it's mutated, it can often form aggregates, and these aggregates are often associated with Parkinson's disease. So people work this back to say that potentially alpha-synuclein is a driver of Parkinson's disease and that if you can reduce the amount of oligomers or fibrils of alpha-synuclein, you can potentially change the course of Parkinson's disease. And if this sounds familiar, it's because it's a similar story to A-beta in Alzheimer's disease where you accumulate these oligomers and fibrils of A-beta And they often see these in Alzheimer's disease patients. So the logic goes that if you can reduce the amount of A-beta in the brain, potentially you can improve Alzheimer's disease. So the similar thing is going on with alpha-synuclein here. And therefore, a number of different companies are developing these vaccines or monoclonal antibodies to try and reduce the alpha-synuclein burden. So I say here that they're a popular target, but they've largely been met with failure. And that happens to be the case right now. There's two programs that I want to focus on moving forward, but a lot of companies have other programs going on too. But Roche and Prothena have a molecule called prazenizumab or PRX002, and this is in phase two right now, even though they had a failure in phase two, they're trying it again in a different patient population to see whether or not prazenizumab can improve motor function in these patients while reducing alpha-synuclein. Another company which is a small cap biopharma is called AC Immune and they have a number of candidates that are vaccines trying to reduce either A-beta or here alpha-synuclein and their molecule is called ACI7104 and this is acquired from a company called Ephiris, which was previously known as PD01A and this molecule is in phase two as well but we haven't seen any phase two data yet. We've heard some phase two data from prazinizumab but not from ACI 7104. So I'm going to talk in more detail about these two programs and why they are an interesting light into why we might not see positive data for vaccinities vaccine data which we're going to see in the second half of this year. Some other notable standouts, AbbVie had a drug that they withdrew due to reprioritization they say. Biogen had a failure with their alpha-synuclein targeting drug. Lundbeck has a drug that's about to start phase two and AstraZeneca has a collaboration with Takeda for another alpha-synuclein targeting antibody with some data due actually in the middle of this year. So that might be interesting but so far it seems like you can reduce alpha-synuclein but it doesn't necessarily lead to a motor function improvement in Parkinson's disease which does that not sound like a similar story to A-beta in Alzheimer's. So Let's see what's going on, though, with Vaccinity's drug, and it's called UB312. And what we have right now is a publication of their Phase 1 Part A in Healthy Volunteers. And so the company did a number of different dosing regimens and different injection schedules, but what they focused on here are the 300 microgram dose and below. And the reason for this is that the dosing regimen higher than 300 was met with a decent amount of side effects that gave the company caution and there was also a covid situation that led them to stop pursuing those dosing regimens any further so what we're going to be looking at here is the 300 300 300 microgram dosing and below and keep this in mind that they're kind of limited on the upside of dosing here at this 300 microgram dose so when we're talking about the serum titers that they were able to achieve they're kind of limited at this as an upside but so what they're showing us here are both the serum titers over time and then the CSF titers because we know that the alpha-synuclein that needs to be removed is in the brain. So it's important for us to see that the antibodies are getting into the CSF to some degree. And so what we see here in the serum is that the C max is of around 70 microgram per milliliter and then it wavers down to around 25 microgram per milliliter at about week 45. This is in the serum. In the CSF, though, it goes to around, what do you say, 120 nanogram per milliliter in the high dose, and then each dose below that is, is quite a bit lower. So we're getting some induction of antibodies that are supposedly reactive to alpha-synuclein, and this is what we're trying to achieve here when we're giving a vaccine is we want to achieve targeting of this alpha-synuclein, preferably the oligomers and greater, so that those molecules are targeted and that the monomeric version of alpha-synuclein can continue to function as a trafficker of neurotransmitters in the brain. And here are some of the things that came out in the paper. The CSF to serum ratio, which is a nice little heuristic for us to see whether or not they're able to get some antibody induction in the CSF, they got a 0.2%. And if we compare this to some of the other trials, prazenizumab, which we're going to talk about, had a 0.3 CSF to serum ratio, so pretty close to that. They mention here that the alpha synuclein levels remained unchanged. That's both the total amount and the free amount. And what they say in the paper is that this is expected because the antibodies here only target the pathologic isoforms or the, the oligomers and the fibrils. So... That's their argument here, but we'll see later why. I don't know if I totally buy this. I mentioned before, cohorts above the 300 microgram dose were stopped because of safety. They say that here the antibodies preferentially bind to oligomeric alpha-synuclein, and they have one figure to show that. The company says that they would expect to dose quarterly or twice per year to maintain a high enough titer of antibodies in order to continue to remove the oligomeric alpha-synuclein in the brain. And reminder, the company's argument here is that monoclonal antibody infusions are very cumbersome and they're too repetitive. So in, say, the Prasnizumab trial, patients have to go to an infusion center once a month in order to get these antibodies. So here what they're arguing is that they can get a subcutaneous injection, maybe quarterly instead of monthly, in order to maintain a similar amount of efficacy. That's the goal for vaccinity here. And then the last thing that came up that I thought was interesting is the paper says that the titers in this trial are in line with regular antibody dosing regimens, and then they cite a concentration of 10 to 20 micrograms per mil. And this stuck out to me because when I looked at the prazinizumab trial, I noticed that their antibody concentrations were much higher than 10 to 20 micrograms per mil. So let's talk about that for a second. So in the prasunizumab trial, and I believe this is the phase one, they haven't really shared with us too much phase two data. And I think the reason for that is they're redoing the phase two in a different patient population. But what we're seeing here are the concentrations of the antibody in the serum after different amounts of time in different doses. So the dose that they are moving forward with in phase two, I believe is the 60 mg per kg. And at that dose, the mean serum concentration afterwards was 1000 micrograms per mil and then it wavered down to around 100 micrograms per mil by four weeks and remember this is a monthly treatment so by that four weeks time point they're supposed to get another infusion to bring the concentration back up to 1000 microgram per mil but so comparing this to the 10 to 20 microgram per mil We can see that prasunizumab had like two orders of magnitude higher concentration of antibody in these patients' blood. And here, the phase 2 trial with this failed. It was unable to achieve a significant improvement in motor function in these Parkinson's disease patients. We also saw here that in the phase 2, actually I think in the phase 1, prasunizumab was able to reduce alpha-synuclein concentrations down to only 4%. So we're seeing a real drastic difference in effect here. We saw that UB312 doesn't lower alpha-synuclein, and it achieves antibody concentrations of around, what do we say here? 70 microgram per mil at its peak in the serum. And then if you do the math, 0.2 CSF to serum ratio. So that's how much it would be in the CSF compared to prazinizumab, which reduced alpha-synuclein down to 4% and had CMAX concentrations of 1,000 microgram per mil. And they saw a failure. So I think this is interesting because it suggests to me that UB312 titers are just not going to be sufficient enough to reduce alpha-synuclein, and therefore they're not going to see much of an effect in motor function in these patients when they release the phase 1 part 2 data. So this is the first thing. I wanna keep going though and talk a little bit about prasunizumab and what we learned from Roche and Prothena. So like I said, they took the phase one data and then they moved into phase two. This is prasunizumab, a monoclonal antibody against alpha-synuclein. And so Roche and Prothena are trying it in phase two. But what we heard is that in April of 2020, Roche announced that the trial had missed the primary efficacy endpoint of MDS-UPDRS, which is the main evaluation of Parkinson's disease, but they say here that it generated positive signals on multiple secondary and exploratory endpoints. They say that Izumab had generally been safe and tolerated in this trial, but had not significantly slowed the decline on the MDS-UPDRS. The treatment showed a trend towards benefit on part three, which is the motor function part, and on several pre-specified tests of motor function, including the mobile phone-based endpoints. So we didn't hear much after that until May of 2021. Roche announced that they began a phase 2b study in Parkinson's disease patients with more advanced symptoms than Pasadena. Pasadena was the original phase two. They call this trial Padova- and the study is enrolling 575 people who are on stable dopamine replacement medication. They will receive monthly prasunizumab or placebo for 18 months. The primary endpoint is meaningful progression on MDS-UPDRS Part 3, defined as a decline of more than five points. So this was prasunizumab results that happened last year or two years ago now, and then a year ago, they started the phase 2b study with the more severe symptom patients. So I think this is super interesting and I'm very curious to know how the results are going to come out here. But I think it stands to reason that if prasunizumab can achieve such significantly high concentrations of their antibody and still don't get an improvement in motor function, it stands to reason that UB312 is very unlikely to also achieve any impact on motor function in these patients so this is part of my rationale on why i think vaccinity is going to be a good short now let's move on to another company's drug which is ac immune's aci 7104 and so this company is also trying a vaccine approach to induce antibodies that target alpha-synuclein and so what we see here are the geometric mean titers after Parkinson's disease patients were given a number of different dosing regimens of ACI-7104. And so we see here in substudy one, it was just a single dose and we get an induction in antibodies and then these go down. And then at around weeks, I think it's like 100 or so, they were given different booster regimens to try and induce a more significant titer of antibody. And they're hoping here that this will be enough to reduce the alpha-synuclein burden in the brain and improve motor function. Now the peptide that they used here is a peptide called PD-01, and this is a peptide that is found in alpha-synuclein. I think it's the C-terminus. So what the company's hoping to do is that the antibodies that are generated against PD-01 will be close enough that it'll also target alpha-synuclein that are in the oligomeric and greater form, and this will then reduce the alpha-synuclein burden in the brain. So they show the data here in geometric mean titer, which is a little bit difficult for us to see exactly how much antibody is induced in the blood, but they did give us some more information in the study itself. So I wanna read here from the paper from their phase one, and they say here that PD01 specific antibody concentrations in serum derived from 12-week, from SPR analysis sub-study one, ranged from 0.5 microgram per milliliter to 18 microgram per milliliter, reaching a mean serum concentration of 5.4 microgram per mil. So this is very much in line with what we saw in the vaccinity trial, UB312. Well, what they say here is that after booster application, the antibody concentrations reached between one microgram per mil and 114 microgram per mil with a mean antibody concentration of around 20 microgram per mil. So here they're getting a huge range in antibody induction after patients received a booster. Now, maybe this is enough to cause alpha-synuclein decreases, but we still see here that it's on the low end of concentration compared to the prasanizumab trial that showed no effect. AC immune goes on to say that their CSF to serum ratio was about 0.3, which is in line with prasunizumab and UB312. But then they also say here that the mean reduction of CSF oligomeric alpha-synuclein was 51% in patients immunized with a 75 microgram dose. So this is interesting because Immune talks specifically about the oligomeric form of alpha-synuclein. In the UB312 trial, they talk about total and free alpha-synuclein. They don't specifically mention oligomeric alpha-synuclein, and it would have been nice if they had measured it, and part of me wonders if they did measure it but just omitted the data, which researchers have been known to do in the past. What AC Immune did here is they focused on oligomeric alpha-synuclein, which is what they're hoping their antibodies in the patient are going to respond to and decrease in the patient, and they're showing here a 51% decline which is still a pittance compared to the effect that prasunizumab has, and prasunizumab failed in the motor readout here, but they're at least showing quite an effect on CSF oligomeric alpha-synuclein. Now what ACMUN also did is they measured MDS-UPDRS part 3 scores in these patients as part of a secondary or exploratory endpoint here. And what they showed was that there was no difference in the 15-microgram group The baseline here was 11.9 and then after the last visit of the vaccine treatment and enough time had passed the scores came out at 12.5 and you can see the standard deviation here is quite high in the last visit here the standard deviation is like 14.8 which is even higher than the marks that were given uh, there so there's a ton of variability because it was a smaller trial and then you'll also notice here that in the baselines 11.9 on the part 3 scores is actually quite low, so these are very much mild Parkinson's disease patients that they selected for this trial. Now in the pooled 75 microgram group, the MDS-UPDRS part 3 scores were 12.7 at baseline, and they actually went down to 8.6 on the last visit. Again, the standard deviation here is very high, so we have to take this with a grain of salt but it was about a 30% improvement in MDS-UPDRS part three here, which is very interesting. And I did a little bit of digging to see whether or not that was a meaningful decline. And what I found is that acute administration of levodopa improves MDS-UPDRS part three by around 25 to 30%. This has been known as a clinically relevant data point here. And so I think that If they could replicate this in a larger trial, it would be interesting, but given the standard deviation is so high, I don't think we can take this data with too much confidence and that we should be very careful as we move into phase two with this program. And I think that the reasons that I cited before about the menial induction in antibodies just might not be enough to cause a significant enough decline in alpha-sinuclein and therefore not enough of an improvement in motor function in these patients in a large enough trial. So that's ACI 7104. The last thing I want to talk about about this trial is that they were a little bit more honest in their paper here. And in AC Immune's paper, they say that specific antibody concentrations, a mean of 19.6 microgram per mil, were lower than reported for monoclonal antibody studies, which have peak levels of more than 1,000 microgram per mil immediately after antibody infusion for the highest dose studied. So here they're at least acknowledging that they're achieving a much lower titer of antibody induction than something like prasunizumab. And whether or not that's going to be material, it remains to be seen, but I think it is going to be impactful and it's going to lead to less efficacy in these vaccine-based treatments. So we'll see what happens, but it's for those reasons why I think Vaccinity coming up to their phase one part B readout is going to be negative and why I'm thinking about taking a short position But I'll tell you why I'm hesitant about that. And this slide kind of shows it all. So I took this data from fintel.io, which I think is a pretty useful resource. They're not a sponsor on the show or anything, but they do have a lot of data that I think is useful, especially if you're gonna short a company. So it shows here the short interest for Vax, 271,000 shares, not as interesting here as the percent short of float, which is 0.7%. So quite low, I would say in general. As well, the days to cover is quite low at 0.12. And then they also show the off-exchange short volume ratio. And so these are shares that are short, not on the normal exchange. This is probably in the OTC markets, which some companies are able to be traded, not on like the normal exchange. So this is at 56.01, which might be a little high, but the short shares available is only 25,000 and the borrow fee is 149%. And if you know how these borrow fees work, it's uh, annualized. So you would take one hundred and forty nine percent, multiply that by your total position in the company, and then divide that by however many trading days there are, and that's the daily amount you're going to be charged as you're holding this short position. So at one hundred and forty nine percent, stocks trading at around five bucks, you know you got to be mindful that if the move doesn't occur quick enough, you're going to incur significant borrow fees. And that's going to eat into any potential profit you get. So the borrow fee rates being at 150% lead me to not want to take a short position here until there's enough shares available that the borrow fee is going to go down enough where I can kind of hold on to the position and manage it and not worry too much about those fees eating into my gains. So that's why I'm not super stoked about this. And if we look at another company here, Longevron, which I talked about shorting, and I haven't done because if you see here, the borrow fees are also very high at around 100% right now. And they went up to around 200%, I think, in the last pump up in the stock. So for those reasons, I've been hesitant to short. We can see here also that the percent short of float is around 12%, which is a lot higher than Vaccinity. So Longevron might pose more of a short squeeze risk, even though there's more short shares available. So there's a lot of metrics to look at when you're shorting stock, but these things give me pause in taking a short position right now. But if it looks good, if the stock continues to move up, I might dabble and just do a small position and see how it goes from there. So that's vaccinity. Let me know what you think. I think it's an interesting story. It's an interesting way to try and treat Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's, but I just don't know if it's better than the monoclonal infusions that are currently being tested in the clinic right now so that's the show for you for upcoming readouts i've got four that are on the short-term horizon for me pdsb has a phase two readout and i think they're presenting at asco or something to highlight that curious i'm waiting for a resolution of the fda clinical hold which i think is going to come Cyclerion has me data coming in q2 of this year and schizophrenia data coming in q3 And then Biogen has Lacanamab data coming in Q3, maybe Q4, because whenever they say the fall, I think it's kind of a gray area and they do that on purpose. If we look at a portfolio overview, these are the positions that I'm in right now. It's all pretty much red. Like I mentioned with SIOX, I'm holding 250 shares here. And I did the math. And yeah, if I up this to around 2,000 shares, I get my cost basis down to around 70 cents and then maybe if something interesting happens with the reverse merger i could come out even i'm not sure if i want to dedicate any of the capital to that though given that it's not been very positive regenix bio just had their q1 update and it felt the stock fell like 10 20 on basically no real material update that we heard from them they're still moving forward i think that i think they're still a great company but they've been suffering quite a bit too. And it's basically the same story for a bunch of these companies. So it is what it is, but I'm sitting right now at around negative 28% with this portfolio, which is quite a bit better than the XBI, quite a bit better than ArcG, which is almost at negative 50% on the year, which is brutal, but really the whole market is taking a downturn. And I think that the feds commitment to interest rate increases are going to be devastating for the small cap sector as well as the tech sector, which has a lot of high growth names. So it's going to be rough for the next little while until the market really does decline overall. And by that, I mean like the SPX 500, which still right now is only at around negative 14% on the year. So until that sees a real material decline, I don't think the Federal Reserve is going to get much pressure to reduce their rate of interest rate increases. So it's going to be tough moving forward, but it is what it is. This is my position weight here. I still have a pretty decent cash position on hand, which I'm thankful for. Otherwise, I might be at negative 36% like the XBI, but it's still not a great situation. But that's the show. I want to thank everybody for your support. Let me know what you think in the comments, or you can send me an email at matthewlaporte@gmail.com, at gmail.com, or send me a tweet at matthewlapod. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up. But thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.